welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and I have another interview episode for you. This is coming from the recent International Agatha Christie Festival. You know, a large part of the joy of this festival is getting to meet up with luminaries within the field of Agatha Christie studies, Agathology, if you will. You have heard from a lot of those people on this podcast before, but you have not heard from the guest I had the privilege to interview in this episode. Let's just go right to the interview because I can't wait. You're going to love it. So one of the more significant perks of traveling to England to participate in the International Agatha Christie Festival is being able to meet my next guest in person. David Braun has worked for over 35 years at HarperCollins here in the UK as a publisher. It is his happy task to handle all the Agatha Christie content that HarperCollins publishes, which he has been doing for 25-odd years now. Uh, This, of course, includes all of Agatha Christie's novels and short story collections, but also the Poirot continuation novels written by our mutual friend Sophie Hanna, as well as Marple, 12 New Mysteries. This is a new collection of short stories featuring Miss Marple, which just came out in the middle of September, written by contemporary authors such as Ruth Ware, Lucy Foley, Val McDermott, Kate Moss, among many others. I am so excited to talk about all of this. Welcome, David. Hello, Kemper. Very, very lovely to uh, be able to do this in person across a table. It's very rare, actually, that I get to do any of these interviews uh, in the same space as the person I'm talking to. So this really is a treat. And I appreciate you making the time during this busy festival that we're both attending. So I made reference to the fact that it's, it's been 25-odd years since you've been working on Agatha Christie, but you had been working at HarperCollins before you started working on Agatha Christie material. So I'm just curious, how did, you, how did that come about? How did you first start working on the Agatha Christie account? I don't know if that's what it's called, but that's what I'll go ahead and call it. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to get into publishing like a lot of young people, mm-hmm. and I had just graduated and was looking for my first job. And publishing is notoriously difficult to get into. And in fact, in the days before the internet, you would go to careers advisors at your university. And I was put off the idea of approaching publishers because they said, oh, you'll never get in. And in fact, the directories that uh, listed job opportunities, famously, for me anyway, included entries such as we do not welcome speculative inquiries Mm. which was the line I found in one of these business books so I I had sort of given up on the idea of joining a publisher and an opportunity came up at a publisher that that was outside London called Thorson's and they were a lifestyle and mind-body-spirit publisher And I went in as a graduate trainee, as we would call them now, and I spent two years indexing cookery books, proofreading manuals on computing and... The literature you were passionate about, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a really good grounding in the sort of mechanics of publishing. And I still say to people, actually, 
you know, the, the skills that we bring to publishing are transferable within the industry. You mm-hmm. can, you know, whether it's crime fiction or political biography, the, the techniques of putting a book together are very much the same wherever. Um, and I had started to climb the ladder, if you like, and I worked across various lists. And it was a time of mergers and acquisitions within mm-hmm. the publishing industry. And Thorson's, like many really very successful independent publishers started to get swallowed up by the big publishers. And they were bought by William Collins. And William Collins then merged with Harper and Rowe to form Harper Collins. And within three or four years, I found myself working for a major London publisher, which I you know, had not anticipated. And in very short time, I was offered the opportunity to run what we called our estates lists, which at that time were principally Agatha Christie and J.R.R. Tolkien. And I said at the time when I was offered the job, they obviously saw something in the way I worked. I said, well, I'm not really a fan. I had read Agatha Christie as a teenager, as we all did. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, I felt a little bit inadequate in terms of my knowledge of the books themselves. And I was told actually that wasn't a problem. And in fact, it might be an asset because in running a list for which there was almost no prospect for brand new publishing, Mm -hmm. this was a management role. And this this was about being able to identify readers and to come up with ideas for new ways of marketing and publishing the books and actually it fit me like a glove mm-hmm. I, I think because here I am 27 years later still essentially doing the same job. <laughs> did you work on the Tolkien estate as well at, the, at that point? Yes I did and in fact at, at that time Tolkien had been published by another independent publisher at that time it was Unwin Hyman that had come from a, another merger between uh, George Allen and Unwin, the original publishers, and Unwin's. They were also bought by Collins. And so, weirdly, we had two, two of the principal estates within the company, which had come from different different routes, right. were being managed by the same person. Mm-hmm. Example, they're, they're both big estates. Both need some of the same skill set, even though in genre terms they were miles. Couldn't be more different, yeah. And the lady who was running the list retired early and very quickly because of a health issue. They suddenly needed someone to run to run these lists, and there were there were bolted onto that a few other estates, but but none of which had the commercial potential of of Agatha Christie or J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And Tolkien at that time. This was this was before Peter Jackson decided sure. he wanted to make the Lord of the Rings. So it was it was very much a literary property, albeit a culty one, mm-hmm. if you like. Niche. Um, <laughs> and Agatha Christie too, which um at that time was sort of back in the sunlight, as it were, because uh, we had had a very successful run of uh, Miss Marple TV with Joan Hickson. David Suchet was still in the early years of mm-hmm. recording Paro. And with with TV and, and, and film and any of those other media activities, uh, you know, there are excuses to sell more books to new people. Um, so that was, you know, it was it was all looking pretty healthy and on the back of the Agatha Christie centenary only five years before. Um, Agatha Christie was enjoying a bit of a renaissance, which hadn't always been 
the case. In the years following her death, the sales had followed a fairly traditional pattern when an author dies. They had started to drop off. There was nothing new mm-hmm. to regenerate the interest. I mean, people forget that by the mid-1980s, um, some of Agatha Christie's books weren't actually in print. They were really they were beginning to drop out of print, and the publishers were looking for ways to regenerate those things. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the centenary gave them that opportunity. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think in 1995, despite the Joan Hickson series and the Suchet series, which really, you know, now that we know how long it went on, was just getting started back then, even though it, it was six years <laughs> on, it does feel like Agatha Christie was perceived in a different way, certainly from the way she is now. I think there's a different appreciation for quote unquote genre fiction to the point where I almost feel the need to use air quotes because I think people don't like the siloing of genre fiction into, you know, shunting it into a corner versus quote unquote literary fiction. But I think that was still very much how people perceived Christie and Tolkien and and anyone that wasn't literary fiction then. And probably still now there are many people who, who still feel that way, but that does seem to be changing. And you know, it's certainly something that we see here at, you know, a festival like International Agatha Christie Festival, all the scholarly work that's going into treating Agatha Christie as a serious writer and using her work to explore all sorts of different aspects of the human condition in a way that I think someone probably from 1983 would have been like, huh? (laughs) I'm just, I'm curious, why do you think that has happened? Why has that changed? Or do you, first of all, do you agree with me that it's changed? And then if you, if you do, I'm just curious if you have any idea as to why, and perhaps it's due to your very efforts. I don't know. Oh, it's, all <laughs> it's all due to you, right? Um, <laughs> no, if only that were true. Um, in 1985, in fact, Collins embarked on something that was pretty unusual in publishing in those days in that they commissioned some market research into the Agatha Christie audience. Now, market research was not a tool that was used in publishing. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's still very much a a traditional industry. And the view was that if they were going to get the covers and things right and get the audience reading again, they really needed to understand what it was that that audience wanted. And... One of the findings from that research was that the covers were entirely inappropriate for the books themselves. They did not represent at that time in the UK or in paperback um, the experience that you would get from reading the book. And by the mid-1980s, popular fiction had moved from sort of men's thrillers being the, the likes of Alistair MacLean and Desmond Bagley and Jack Higgins and some of some of these authors that were you know they these were the books that populated the bestseller mm-hmm. lists and certainly for Collins who were uh, you know who were very strong in that area but also horror was a big was a big draw for people authors like James Herbert were doing extremely well and I remember talking to Tom Adams about his covers and of course he did covers for Agatha Christie for the best part of 20 years mm-hmm. more. And he was sort of retired from, from doing Agatha Christie in the early 1980s. But he said even towards the end, when, you know, some of his more gruesome covers were being painted, you know, the, the spiders coming out of the tops of people's heads, mm-hmm. 
eyeball sunsets or whatever. Yes. Lots of eyeballs. The eyeballs always make me very, oh, yeah. Not, not, and skulls. Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean, and he said that, you know, at, at that at that time, he remembers Mark Collins, one of the Collins family, was was very much in charge of the fiction output at that time. And when he would send in cover roughs, it was like, no, more horror. We need more horror. Huh. Because these were the books that were sort of trending and popular. In the 60s and 70s, yeah. right? That whole horror yeah. Yeah, and renaissance. Yeah. And in fact, also, you, you see that in the, the sort of pan editions of the books that were also coming out as around and slightly after Tom's. You know, there was still, the, 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 the skulls and the eyeballs were still very, uh, very present. Um, and this was the this was the publisher trying to be fashionable in publishing terms and make the books look like what they thought people wanted to read. Books that lots of people buy, yeah. And what the research actually told them, and um, I mean, it seems obvious now that you know the the books about country house murders um, and colonels and and old maids weren't delivering on the promise of the covers. There was a mismatch between the, mm. what it looks like and what, what the reading was. And so uh, this was probably not very clever if, you, if you're going to create a new audience. You know, people who might like Agatha Christie might be put off by these mm-hmm. And out of that came a decision to, to repackage in rather nice uh, pastel-coloured covers with a, a, what I would call an Art Deco font and some and some sort of mild artwork of artefacts and items from the books themselves. And a, and a uniform edition was created in time for the centenary that mm-hmm. was much more in keeping and had fewer shock tactics employed than the paperback covers that had been on those books for the previous 20 years. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to work really, really well, along with the sort of publicity that, that the centenary afforded the publishing. Right. And the TV. And, and the TV. And that is... I mean, I did not expect that to be part of your answer at all. I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's just funny because, in a way, thinking of those Tom Adams covers as taking away from sales or or misdirecting readers is it's just interesting because they've become so beloved because they are creepy and beautiful but i completely understand what you mean because i think as you're coming out of that 60s 70s psychological horror craze people who still want to read that material well if they're picking up that book because of that cover they're not getting that for most of most of Agatha Christie, you know, maybe Endless Night, like that might be the only one that's like a little bit tonally in in line with that. They're not getting it, and then the people that might want the Christie material aren't going to think that that book is you know the book that's going to satisfy them. So that's really interesting that re- repackaging them like that. Dead birds and dead flies were, you know, obviously all the all the rage then. And yeah, I'm not saying that they, these covers weren't entirely appropriate for for you for know, that for period, that, that but genre, yeah, at that time. But yeah. certainly by the 1980s, mm-hmm. fashions were changing, and the books needed to look different. And um, I mean, it's one of the things that amuses me as publisher, uh, having been in the role for so long is every time we do what we call a repackage of the books mm-hmm. and you know we we put a lot of thought into it quite often it is backed up now even now by market research we do some testing see what what is it that people 
want, who are the audiences we are trying to reach. And that's very difficult, Christy, because people of so many ages and backgrounds and any sense of gender, but genders mm-hmm. read them, it's it's very, very broad. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, it's it's impossible to you know, to tailor something to everybody's taste. I still want 12-year-olds to be reading and enjoying yeah. Agatha Christie, and I want those books also to be relevant to people who are, you know, revisiting them in their retirement and everybody in between. And so the covers are still one of the most important things that we do. But every time we do, as I say, one of these repackages, I sit back in my chair and think, well, they look great. These are the best they they ever have, ever have <laughs> looked. And I won't have to do that again. Right. And within four or five years, someone will tell me that actually these are looking a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? Time for a change. Right. We're doing the same now. So I can't think off the top of my head. I mean, it must be four times I've done put new covers on on all of on all of them and when you do that you do it for the canon like yeah 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 and that is the you know we all love agatha christie and the numbers of books that there were but there are quite a lot of times when i (laughs) wish that she had written half as many (laughs) yeah that she was just a a little less productive yeah that's really interesting it is it's a unique problem how do you create the perfect cover for an a a book that has almost universal appeal that is going to appeal to a 12 year old a middle schooler in the u.s and then a retiree and say, I don't know, India or something like it's just everyone. I mean, it's, it's kind of an impossible task, but probably at least updating and refreshing off of the changing times and research is the best that you can do. But that's really interesting. And I, I blame our, um, our forebears, you know, the publishers of a hundred years ago who would repackage books within months of publication and have multiple formats that, mm-hmm full-priced hardbacks and then the cheap editions and they would uh, recycle some cover designs and they would put new covers on now if we were working in the music business you know the album cover becomes synonymous with a with yeah an album and it stays with you don't have to change it yeah ever mm-hmm. and you know again one of the things i sometimes wish for it oh why why couldn't we have that in publishing <laughs> this endless restlessness this yeah needs to to reinvent and to move the books forward but that's what we do and that has been a you know constant theme this this need to update and you know because we're trying to the market moves people's tastes differ and we want we want the books to be on the shelves at the front of the store not not hidden at the back and so there's this sort of dressing them up as as new titles Mm -hmm. that happens a lot Plus, now you have Instagram as well, right? So and people love showcasing, oh, look at this new edition of Agatha Christie. I, I imagine that's important too. Oh, it's massively important. And I, I gather so is TikTok. And I won't pretend to understand <laughs> all of that. Nor will I. <laughs> I'm of a, a generation that, uh, that comes to this stuff a little bit more slowly than, <laughs> uh, than younger people. But, you know, the, these things are informing public tastes and obviously influences are very powerful and so we you know we're spending a lot of time trying to ensure that the that the messaging is right but and also it comes from the sources that will encourage people to read these books i am i'm convinced that agatha christie's books are still rewarding for almost a universal readership i mean goodness you know everyone on this podcast will 
will know that because you've looked in detail at, I think, pretty much every book and, and proved the point. But it's there is some anxiety as the publisher as to whether the books will carry on selling and being relevant. I think every year, if not every morning, I wake up, <laughs> you know, pleased that they're still selling. I mean, it wouldn't be impossible looking at many, many other writers who have disappeared over the years to contemplate the idea that, you know, one day these books will stop selling because something else will have taken over. Unthinkable. <laughs> but it's still, the, yeah, it's still the thing that, that worries us and why we put such a lot of energy into keeping yeah, the, the brand leader at the front of the pack. Well, this might end up then being a, a seamless segue into my next question, which is obviously the decision to create new content, to do Poirot continuation novels with Sophie, and now this Miss Marple collection of short stories. Um, that was a, a big decision and a big change um, and something that's fairly recent. Did the reason behind that have to do with marketing and keeping the books front and center? Or was there another reason? And I'm just curious, why did it happen at the time that it did? Because, you know, Christy had passed away for a while then. And I have to imagine that this was an idea, the idea of doing continuation novels that had been around and in the ether for a while. So I'm curious why it happened when it did happen. I don't think it was a new idea. In fact, that would be supremely arrogant. I'm, uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure that you know, within months of Agatha's death, you know, that it was being contemplated, but it was entirely unnecessary at that time. There were, mm -hmm. there were so many books and she was so popular. And in fact, Agatha Christie Limited and Collins still managed a Christie for Christmas for you know, three or four years after, after she mm -hmm. died mm -hmm. with Sleeping Murder, with the autobiography. Um, and another collection of short stories, I think, right? Miss Marple's Final Cases. Cases. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so there, there was for a little while uh, still some new publishing to be had. And there were, there were subsequent collections in Problem at Palenza Bay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the first meeting I had in, in 1995 with Brian Stone, who was at Hughes Massey and Agatha Christie's agent mm -hmm. at a time when Rosalind Hicks was still alive. And I went along as a young, enthusiastic publishing tyke and uh, suggested over lunch that I'd had this amazing original idea that obviously no one had thought of because if they had they'd have done it by now which is why don't you get someone else to write some Poirot and Miss Marple stories <laughs> and uh, of course he very quickly and gently put me back in my place and said well you know it's not something that Agatha Christie Limited would entertain but of course it had been considered but Agatha's books were selling extremely well at that point and it just didn't seem appropriate and in fact it wasn't a there wasn't the fashion for it then there had been some what do we call it franchise publishing uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the James Bond canon stuff sure. with Kingsley Amos in uh, the late 60s that was I think probably the only one of the big the big brands uh, that was doing it. In fact, at that time, um, Booker Entertainment was a was a company that had shareholdings in in both 
Agatha Christie and Ian Fleming. So, in fact, you know, the, the Agatha Christie company was very familiar with with this as a concept and just you know didn't see any need for doing it. And we came up with a new short story collection, Wild Alive. Wild Alive, last yeah, I love that one. You know, that was an attempt to put together a new collection of stories because I it, I became aware fairly quickly, did some research that there were one or two stories, not as many as I thought there might be, but enough to put a volume together. And, and Tony Medawar edited that, didn't he? Yes, he did. Tony was Tony was very useful in that regard because he helped, particularly I think Manx Gold was something that mm. I'm not sure even Agatha Christie's agent was aware of about <laughs> its existence. Yeah, <laughs> but he had uh, you know, he made himself known as a fan to the company by that point, and um, so he was he was in, invited, you know, to put into the into this and you know, tell me what do you what do you know that exists? And in fact, he volunteered to write some little introductions to contextualize each of the stories in the book, and we found one or two stories on lists that we thought would go into while the light lasts. There was one called The Mystery of the Dressing Case, and we were very excited that here was an Agatha Christie story that hadn't been published. And Brian then managed to track down a copy of it, of it from a newspaper, and, uh, of course, it, it turned out to be um, something else, Murdering um, the News, I think. Uh, and, of course, all those alternative titles. So we had a bit of a wild goose chase trying to trying to find stories. But shortly after that, and the, the success that that book brought, we were looking for new ideas and novelizing the plays was the was the first. Um, oh, right, with Charles Osborne? That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and Charles had volunteered his manuscript of, of the novelization of Black Coffee. Mm-hmm. So this thing sort of came ready-made. Brian presented it to me, and he said, this, this is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And it was safe in that although we had another writer putting it together, this was essentially Agatha Christie's story but it was probably too safe those and that and the two books that followed there's a spider's web and the unexpected guest those are the yes they have been novelized in a very safe way Mm -hmm. it's essentially taken the dialogue and and written some some linking descriptive text and then therefore relatively short and you know they're not they're not creative or artistic pieces they're a solid novelization but they don't have any real flair to them beyond what was in the play script themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was around 2000, right? That's right. Came out. And, and Charles actually did a draft of Verdict, which, without wanting to spoil anything, um, I don't think anybody dies in, in Verdict or not, not under suspicious circumstances. That, that's um, the play. I think it didn't do well because of that, right? Verdict by Agatha Christie sounds like, oh, well, we're getting witness for the prosecution or yeah, something yeah. similar, but it it's very different from that. you get to that. the end of the first act and, you know, you shuffle out into the interval and it's like, well, what's, you know, nobody's died yet. Where's, <laughs> Where's the, the body? body? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, we felt that actually that probably wasn't going to fly as a as a novelization and it was probably the right time to stop doing these. There are obviously other plays that, that could have been done and... Mm-hmm. Guess might be done at some point in the future, but at that time we thought actually we'd exhausted that. But Black Coffee, the first one, being a Poirot, was an enormous success. It was a um, New York Times bestseller. Um, I think something like three hundred and fifty thousand hardbacks were sold. Wow! 
um, and a, and a uh, bestseller in in the UK as well. And you know, we thought we were onto something really rather spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, the subsequent two books did not do as well. They're not Pyro, which um, mm-hmm. you know, tells us a lot about some of the things that attract people to Christie. <laughs> so we were we were then we then well, well we've done that. Let's see what else there is to do. And, and at that point. Um, a new company had taken over Agatha Christie Limited. The, the, the Booker shareholding had passed to Corian, and Corian had big ambitions um, with, the, with the same directors who ran Agatha Christie Limited itself, but to um, to bring Agatha Christie into the 21st century, and with that came Agatha Christie's Marple TV series with Geraldine McEwen initially. So there was TV activity. There was there was some very early on a bit of film activity with the Alfred Molina Orient Express, which, like it all Indeed. did, mm. was something new. Uh, you know, for the first time, it's definitely new. Anything had happened for a while, and they also commissioned some more market research, um, quite a big piece of work into Agatha Christie and the books, but also the branding. There was no real branding style. That was when the signature was introduced. Mm-hmm. But what the research told us, and this was about 2001, was that generally people professed to be a bit embarrassed about reading Agatha Christie. Certainly mm-hmm. if they were if they were fans of, of modern crime writing, and this is before the golden age became fashionable again. Yeah. And in fact, we made a decision then to repackage the books again and make Agatha Christie's name look quite small <laughs> on the covers because people were saying in this research, I don't want to be seen sitting on a on a tube train or a, reading an or Agatha Christie. Reading an Agatha Christie. Oh, that's and so fact, interesting. I love Agatha Christie. I might want to hide it behind my newspaper when I'm reading it. Wow. And so we came up with a, a very smart new look for the books, which was largely black, which a lot of crime books were at that point. The photographic, which was the first time in a long time we'd seen photographic covers on Christie, which felt more modern. Mm-hmm. Agatha Christie's name was a very small signature at the top of the cover, and the title was not very much bigger. And the sales went up, and collectively they looked very smart. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could read them surreptitiously. This was a guilty pleasure. Were those covers just UK covers, the darker photographic ones? Because I don't ever remember seeing them. Because this is what the early aughts yes. about. Yes, that's right. And this is yes, I'm talking um, specifically about publishing in the UK. In the UK, yeah. So this is because uh, that, that's just interesting to me because I'd never seen those. Not to bring up another another huge estate at this point, but I still remember coming to England probably right around this time, just before Harry po- Harry Potter reached absolute fever pitch, and I hadn't read any of them yet. And part of the reason I hadn't read any of them in the U.S. is they look like children's books in the U.S. And I was in college at the time, so I probably didn't want to be caught dead reading a children's book. But I remember picking up the first couple of editions because here they had like a train, a photographic cover with a train on it. And it looked just like a regular book that an adult would buy. And I remember that actually did get me to buy the Harry Potter series. And then I was hooked. So I believe you (laughs) that 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 would work (laughs) in that way. Well, yes, Harry, and we all remember when Harry Potter was at its height, you know, just how many people read them. I, I do remember remarking on the, 
on a tube train journey in London to work one morning, looking down a carriage and seeing, I think, seven, wow. let's call them grown men, mm-hmm. reading Harry Potter. essentially a children's book yeah. um, with a children's cover. And it was Bloomsbury who published in the UK, came up with the idea. I don't know whether it was when the canon of books had been finished or certainly towards the end, doing dual covers, doing sort of more grown-up covers yeah. Yeah. To, to encourage uh, older people to read them. But, you know, dads were having to read them so they knew what their kids were going to be talking about. Right. It was such a cultural phenomenon. Right. And, you know, there, there was a time when, you know, that was true of a brand-new Agatha Christie book. <laughs> um, I think, every, you know, a new book would come out and everybody would, would read it. So those covers were very much UK covers, but we're talking about, I mean, 20 years ago, Agatha Christie had more than one publisher in the USA. So the list had been split between Berkeley, who were publishing, I think, the Poirots and the Marples, and St. Martin's Press, who were publishing the rest of the canon of Christie. Oh, I never realized that. Okay. So there wasn't a single publisher in the US. And Mm -hmm. this is not uncommon, you know, any author who writes over a period of time, you know, can find that they change publishers over the years. And and certainly in the old old days, um, you would have different publishing house publishing in hardcover um, to the paperback publisher. Mm -hmm. The licenses would be granted for paperbacks, which is how you know, in the very early days, you see Penguin Books publishing the first paperbacks of Agatha Christie's mm. works, and then and then Pan Books in in the UK. And certainly, when I when I started managing Christie, there were these two two publishers in the US, and that there are disadvantages there because there's always a little bit of nervousness if you're not an author's sole publisher that you're going to put out marketing materials or or have a campaign and the other publisher who is a business is going to benefit is going to benefit and mm. jump on your bandwagon. Mm. And also there's a nervousness about all your books looking the same. So mm-hmm. certainly in the US at that time, there were at least two different looks to Agatha Christie. I remember that. And then I remember the Berkeley was very distinctive. They had more of the, the Berkeleys would always have clues on the cover, sometimes quite spoilery clues, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And they, and they had a white sort of background and and a very light look to them. And I, and it was, it was at St. Martin's you said that, that yes. did the, they did all of the standalones then essentially. Yes, that's right. I okay. think there had been some tidying up earlier on because of course, you know, in the old days, a lot of Agatha Christie's titles were completely different mm-hmm. in the US as well. And certainly, I think in the 1990s, there had already been a move towards standardizing the titles. But there were, at that point, there were titles on the before 50 from Paddington and in small time, also known as mm-hmm. what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. Um, that now has disappeared. Of course, those, those long-established U.S. titles have disappeared from the covers, but for quite some time, in order not to mislead readers, you know, there were the, there were these dual titles appearing on covers, and you know, all of that a bit a bit messy and a bit confusing for the consumer. But the long term goal was was towards a, a sort of global picture. And one of the things I, I you know have been fortunate enough to be around for was in 2010, 2010, 
seeing HarperCollins acquire from Barclays and St. Martins the rights to Agatha Christie in the US mm-hmm. for the first time. We have one publishing house yes. globally publishing all the books. Yes. Um, and that has allowed us to, you know, consolidate a lot of the effort to unify the marketing. And although covers are still different in, on different sides of the pond because tastes and fashions and publishing are different, mm-hmm. there is more uniformity. But we can we can market Agatha Christie with confidence and knowing that um, people who get into into her can collect, you know, the, the whole canon of books. They don't get to one place to, yeah. you know, to buy the series. Well, I'll tell you, I w- while I've been reviewing all of Christie's books for this podcast, I actually made a point of buying the new U.S. HarperCollins editions of each of them because I like the uniformity on my shelf. And what I also like about it, and this is, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but I think that the U.S. HarperCollins covers are pretty plain, there's some sort of imagery in each of them that has to do with the title in some way. Like there's obviously a lot of thought put into them and I think they're attractive, but they also aren't splashy or drawing attention to themselves. And I quite like that. I like that those books, and when they're, when, when they're on my shelf, it's very much about the text and not the covers. Cause I'm, I, I myself am actually not as much of a bookstagram and, and sort of, cover arty person i i can appreciate a good cover and i love the tom adams covers and and i love the tradition of i think agatha christie covers down the decades and then i can delight in them just as much as the next christie fan but i appreciate that the collection of books i have is very much just focused on on the text it's nice i'm quite <laughs> particular about series and i mean if spines don't match i get i'm mm-hmm. very annoyed and I can't understand when I see on Instagram or someone somewhere someone will put up their photo of their this is my Agatha Christie collection. And it's a rag bag of old and new mm-hmm. and you know, books that have come from all over the place. But of course, these books have sentimental value. You can look at your you can identify where you bought those books and yes, you know, others Others who bit like me will, you know, be tempted perhaps to buy a whole new collection if there's a new book that, that really appeals. Yes. And of course, we, do, you know, it's difficult. Publishers are not interested particularly in encouraging people to buy secondhand copies. Right. Uh, we, get, we get a lot of inquiries about, oh, how much do you think this is worth? I've got, you know, I've got a Tom Adams. What do you think it's worth? Or can I get another one of these? And of course, I, you know, oh, no, but there's nothing new. Right. That's really. Could I offer you this array of new? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Morrow in the US, who the imprint under which Agatha Christie now falls, have just created some gorgeous new covers for Miss Marple. Yes. I saw that. 13 of them. And as soon as we saw them, we thought, these are fantastic. People are going to love them. But in the UK, we, we've done something different because we just felt that the, the floral covers, and they have clever things you know, worked into the mm-hmm. designs. There are weapons, and actually there's a there's a silhouette of uh, Miss Marple's face in each of those covers, which I'm not sure everybody was Oh, well, I did not know that. Uh-huh. Um, but we thought they were too, they, they just didn't chime with you know, what you would expect to see on a crime and mystery table in a in a bookstore in the UK. Yeah. And so we've gone we've gone for a for a completely different look. And 
you know, it would be fantastic to come up with a look that, that would work globally. But it's it's very difficult because there are, you know, booksellers have particular mm-hmm. ideas about how these books should look. In fact, if you cast your net wider and look internationally, in every country there's almost a completely different look for Agatha Christie's books. Yeah. But it's fine. We do what's appropriate to, yeah. you know, to appeal to the broadest possible audience in each market. Yeah. Um, and if if it, if it dictates that they have to be different in both in both countries, then so be it. But the, I love that I love what Morrow have done with with Miss Marple. I'm also very proud of what we've done uh, here in the UK. We have some new candy coloured covers with silhouettes and behind them um, a new picture. And in fact, we've just published um, a wall calendar, very old fashioned thing for everyone who has their digital planner, but a really lovely calendar with all of Bill Braggs, who's the artist for the new Marvel covers, all of his artwork you know, uh, printed large. And uh, in fact, we've been selling that for the first time at the Agatha Christie Festival this week, and it seems to be going down a storm. Oh, I'm going to have to pick up one of those. Is it one one marble a month, basically? It's like, uh, yes. that's perfect. Yes, and there are so there are fourteen. We we have twelve novels, and and then the two in the UK we have two books of short collections, stories, yeah, which are, I think in the US have been consolidated into one volume. Yes, so we have fourteen, and we've managed to get all fourteen of those artworks into the, into the calendar, and, uh, and oh. it's uh, it's a lovely thing. And of course, now we're scratching our heads and thinking we could be onto something here. What are we going to put in the calendar if we do one next year? So here's an exclusive. We're going to start repackaging Ocul Pro early next year with a view to, to having a, a whole new look across Christie's books within the next 18 months. Well, may I suggest The Labors of Hercules as calendar? Mm-hmm. 12 Labors. That's a good idea. I right? Like Thank you. There you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> it's time to talk BritBox listeners. Why? because this episode is sponsored by BritBox. But honestly, I am always willing to talk about BritBox because it means I get to talk about the best television for mystery lovers. Did you know that right now BritBox is running a She Wrote Murder campaign celebrating the greatest female mystery writers of all time? I mean, in my opinion, those would be the greatest mystery writers of all time, full stop. But why don't you check them out for yourself? Shows based on books by Agatha Christie, Anne Cleves, Val McDermid, Kate London, and so many more. From familiar favorites like Poirot and Miss Marple to smash hits like Shetland, Vera, and The Tower, they are all on BritBox. And if you're listening to this in the U.S. and Canada, you can get 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription when you go to BritBox.com and use coupon code AGATHA. So don't delay. Act now. Supplies aren't running out, but the sooner you get to BritBox.com and use coupon code AGATHA, the sooner you'll find yourself immersed in a warm and cleansing bath of British mystery. Alas, the crumpet-scented bath salts are sold separately. I promise I will get to the to the new content, which when I was asking David to very kindly give me his time, I, I think he probably assumed that was mainly what I was going to ask him about. 
but as usual, I'm, I'm getting stuck on all of this front material because it's so fascinating to me. But the other reason I just have to say why I ended up using the HarperCollins US, their latest or at that point, latest editions of the Christie novels is that early on, I believe it was for Death in the Clouds, or it actually may have been Lord Edgeware Dies. I used one of the Berkeley editions because my uh, it was at my parents' house. And I was like, oh, I, I won't buy that one because my parents have it. I, I'll put, with apologies to you. That's what, that's what I said to my myself. So I started reading it. And then because I have been doing this podcast with my late partner, Catherine, Catherine and I were comparing notes before we started recording. And I realized that the Berkeley editions actually excised certain aspects of Christie's text. And we on the podcast call them the, the depiction stuck in their time that might, you know, for a, a 21st century reader or a reader reading in whatever the present day happens to be, it might mar the read or strike them as as offensive. These had to do with some, some anti-Semitic comments that were made by one character. The HarperCollins U.S. editions, though, did not do any of those excisions. And I'm assuming that that was a decision that had to be made. I'm just curious if you've ever been part of that decision-making process. Well, when a publisher takes over an, an author's list, when the publishers change hands, there's not a lot of continuity, let's put it that way. So I'm not sure that the team at Morrow or us in the UK... I'm not sure that we were aware necessarily of what changes might have been made to the texts mm. in the editions in the US mm-hmm. over time. And I think for, if I remember rightly, for the sake of expediency, the US took the UK files for the books for their new editions um, in 2010, 2011, whatever mm-hmm. that was. When HarperCollins had acquired everything in the U.S. Mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm-hmm. So um, if there had been work done on the, on the Berkeley editions, for example, I'm not sure what happened to that. Now, in the, in the U.K., there, you know, we're aware, of course, that Agatha Christie had been uh, writing at a time when society was different to mm-hmm. how it is now. And... You know, but and she was also using techniques in her characterization to you know highlight uh, some of the bad characters. You know, she might have put words into some of their uh, into their mouths, into their dialogue that she would never have used herself, but was a bit of a clue for readers that this was an unsavory person. And you know, there were things one could get away with then, or simply would go unnoticed or unchallenged, which in the 21st century we probably wouldn't. But I am aware, having gone through the books, I mean, one of the things we we did probably nearly 20 years ago now was release a series of what we call facsimile editions, Mm -hmm. which were reprints, replicas of the first editions. Mm. And we became aware that there were subtle differences in the texts in those books between uh, or between those books and the paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Because what has happened over the over the years, very gradually, and you know, just as and when any instances occurred 
or any complaints we receive, mm-hmm. a word, the, the word would be changed. Oh, interesting. And this happens, I think, in all in all publishing. Sure. And little uh, nips and tucks here and there between hardcover and paperback, essentially. Well, yeah, and there are you know there there are words that are changed because they might not be immediately comprehensible to a to a reader. You know, fifty years later, mm-hmm. some, some jargon or. Uh, or a turn of phrase that twelve-year-old might not understand, or, mm-hmm. or their parents might not want them to be <laughs> using themselves. So there have very gradually, and in a way that hasn't, I don't think, been catalogued. There have been odd, odd changes of, of words over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, famously, of course, one book had its title changed completely in the in the UK. That has been an ongoing, but rather organic process. And in fact, actually. One of the things that was also interesting when we published the facsimile hardback editions was that what we didn't realize that in republishing those, we were also reinstating mistakes or phrases that Agatha herself Mm. uh, changed for the subsequent paperback edition. Mm. It's very rare that a book goes from hardback to paperback after a year or so, even now. When an author doesn't come in and make some changes or some corrections, yeah, and so within a year of the books originally being published, there might have been some changes, and some of those changes we know that there were different chains of communication between Agatha and her agent and her American publisher as to her British publisher, mm-hmm. and so there may well very early on have been changes to those texts, right that would have appeared in the Dodd Mead editions and subsequently filtered on through directly through to St. Martin's. Yeah. That no one would ever have known about in the UK. So, you know, these these things have become subtly different. But I mean I'm talking about the odd word here and there. We know more famously that there are two or three novels, I think. That are substantially different. Right. Significant. I think the moving finger is another one. That's right. Yeah. But I'm talking about just just word mm-hmm. word changes. If there are, if there are differences between the paperbacks, you know, you were perhaps reading as a as a youngster, and what you might find in a an ebook or a or a paperback now, mm-hmm. some of that will be simply because we have now used the British version of the yep. book as the template for yep. the for the American editions, right? And um, you know, so you so you'll find you know the occasional word maybe relating to conditions of disability or something that that might have been changed simply mm-hmm. out of out of respect for mm-hmm. uh, certain readers. Yeah, that's really interesting. So on new content, I am curious because you chose to do some new Poirots before this this new Miss Marple. I was just going to ask you that question outright, but now in the context of our conversation, it sounds as though perhaps you chose to do Poirot first because of the success that you had with Black Coffee in particular, with the Charles Osborne continuation? Was that part of the calculus of doing Poirot continuations first before Miss Marple, or did it just happen to happen that way? No, it it wasn't as strategic as that, in (laughs) fact. I think a lot of fans will know because it's, you know, Sophie Hannah has talked about this over the last nearly 10 years since the monogram murders was mm-hmm. published. Wow, that's crazy. The idea came about sort of serendipitously uh, in that her 
agent recommended Sophie um, to write a Poirot novel without asking her. Uh, <laughs> HarperCollins in the UK had just embarked on a new series of Jane Austen uh, reimaginings, mm -hmm. um, up-to-date novels based on her six original mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. starting with Joanna Trollope. Mm -hmm. and, uh, her version of Pride and Prejudice brought up to date and I think I'm right in saying that her agent was the same agent as Sophie Hannes there was some crossover mm -hmm. maybe with that or with, with one of the subsequent books in that series and so her agent said I, you know, I have an author who's an enormous fan of Agatha Christie and I'm sure she'd love to do you a Poirot and the editor for the Austin series came bouncing into me. She was a very bouncy person. <laughs> and said, oh, great news. The wonderful Sophie Hammer, who at that time was a bestseller in, in paperback mm -hmm. after writing uh, books such as Little Face. She wants to do a Poirot. And I, I sort of sighed and rolled my eyes and said, oh, not another one. You know, <laughs> This was, you know, not the first and certainly not going to be the last time someone said, let's do a a continuation novel. Indeed, I had done exactly the same thing <laughs> Stone, you know, two decades before. But remarkably, it coincided with a conversation that I had with Agatha Christie Limited, and we were looking at that time at the, the sort of sales trajectory of Agatha Christie, and we were admiring also what other lists were doing and I mean this is where James Bond comes into it again because Sebastian Folks had written the you know his continuity book uh, mm -hmm. Devil May Care I think it was called for James Bond which was I think at the time the, the biggest hardback fiction novel that Penguin had published for quite some years it was just remarkably successful that mm -hmm. combination of a, of a popular author and a big brand and at a time when Certainly in the UK, supermarkets were dominating the sales of books in large volumes. Mm. Um, Amazon probably wasn't as well established as it is now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 10 years ago, still a significant retailer of books. But, you know, there were other retail chains that would contribute to the success of anything. And the supermarkets did not and do not, as a rule, take backlist, you know, they're interested in new books. And we were a little bit concerned, again, we'd done some, done a bit of market research, that we didn't think we were capturing as many new readers, those young readers, like you, people like me as a child who, you know, we all defaulted to reading Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. There was no YA. There were, you know, there were very few books written for a teenage sensibility. We would read, you know, children's fiction. We would read Enid Blyton or Nancy Drew. And, you know, you very quickly would move on to Agatha Christie because mm -hmm. these books were relatively short, very, very well-written, concise in their dialogue. Her, her vocabulary is not, is not going to be off-putting. And there's no overt violence. So, I mean, there's some pretty brutal killings, but we don't get to see them blood in the in the text and so that you know parents would say oh yeah you want to read Agatha Christie in fact how many people do we hear who say well, I was on holiday and <laughs> my mum said why don't you read one of these yeah 
And that wasn't happening as much because thanks to J.K. Rowling and you know, mm. many others, Anthony Horowitz and, and mm-hmm. Bond and, you know, these things, suddenly there were lots of other really good things to entice children away from reading Agatha Christie. <laughs> and that, I mean, that was just one one component of it. But I mean, the, the I think I'm right in saying that the, there was... There was a general feeling, both at at Harper Collins and perhaps among the among at Agatha Christie Limited, and I can't I can't really speak for them because they have their own conversations about the, what they want to do. But the the conversation I had was basically it, it felt like it probably was the right time to explore doing a new book mm-hmm. with a, another author, and this was literally the week after. I had rolled my eyes at <laughs> my editing colleague and went, we'll never get permission for that. So, you know, uh, so I, I come away from a conversation with, I think it was Matthew Pritchard and Hilary Strong at, at ACL, with the thought, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do? And, and hey, presto, Sophie Hannah's already in the mix. So right. It very quickly arranged a, a meeting. Not knowing whether Sophie would end up being the person to write the book, or even if we would get a book at all, and her agent had spoken to her, and she did have an idea. She did have an idea for a novel she wanted to write, and a, a, a type of narrative that she said wouldn't work for one of her modern crime thrillers. And everybody met and got on like a house on fire, actually. It was a really good marriage of ideas in that meeting. And for me, I was saved what would have been a very, or potentially awkward time of having to put together a short list of authors who might mm-hmm. approaching someone. And I mean, what if they turned us down? I don't know. I mean, I mean, it was just Sophie was there. She had a great idea. She had a good track record. And she wanted to do a pilot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so actually, to answer the question you asked me many minutes ago, <laughs> why was it a pilot and not a marvel? I think it was because Sophie said, I want to do a Poirot. Mm. Had she said she wants to do a Marvel, history might have been slightly different. But at that point, it was just we were toying with the idea of doing a new book. And I don't, I think it, we just coalesced around doing a Poirot. And it was obvious, an obvious thing to do. Yeah. Um, because the, the TV was still. Mm-hmm. Had it just finished? Maybe it had just finished. Finished in 2013, I believe. Yeah, so I, th- I think it was at that time, that last series. But even was, if it had finished, it was, it was still fresh back. in everyone's everyone's mind, and and there are more Poirots, of course. Yeah, and so then so that you know that just came together really well, yeah. and and it was very much you know we were all determined this was a this was a one off. <laughs> um, let's see how it goes. Let's see if it does regenerate sales of of Agatha Christie's own books. We weren't doing this for its own sake. The whole point of it, and the reason the discussion came about, was that we wanted a catalyst for reminding people that Agatha Christie's books and characters were worth reading. Mm. And actually, there are many people who are fans of Agatha Christie because they watch the TV versions. And because the TV had been going for so long, you know, the people who called themselves fans, and they are fans, they're not, not discrediting sure. them in any way. Yeah. But they're fans of the TV. And they, some of them probably 
or, or not probably they weren't even contemplating reading the books. Yeah. And we wanted a new a new reading experience that might tease them into, yeah, go on, we'll actually read this. And if you like this, actually, hey, there are 80 more you can read. Yeah. And a new book by a new author would get us onto that shelf in the supermarket and right. you know, and just become a piece of dialogue. And and Sophie Hannah was such a champion of Agatha Christie. And even now, you know, whenever she does publicity for a new book, she doesn't talk about her book. She talks about Agatha Christie and how big mm. Agatha Christie was. And it's and it's it's quite infectious. Yes, the whole it thing. is. She's very persuasive. In her yeah. passion for yeah. Agatha Christie, and that's, you know, and and that's what has been so rewarding about. It. And we have seen Agatha Christie's own books increase in sales and popularity as a result of publishing Sophie Hannah's Faro's. And you know, for for me, and I think for all of us, you know, that was why we did it, and that's mm-hmm. why we think it's a success, and that's why, in fact, it didn't end up just being one book. Mm-hmm. We did another one, and then we did another one, and um, and Sophie, I'm very pleased to say, is about to deliver the manuscript for book number five, which will be published in uh, towards the end of 2023. That's fantastic. Well, and you have now, of course, decided fairly recently to do a Miss Marple collection, which is uh, recently out. It has been out for a couple of weeks. Obviously, the the big difference here between what you did with Sophie and what you're doing with Miss Marple is that Sophie's Poirot continuation books are full-length novels, and this is a collection of short stories. So why did you decide to do a collection of short stories for Miss Marple and not start with a novel like you did with Poirot? So we came to Miss Marple after, you know, a few years of doing and it was, I mean, it would have been very obvious, I think, to do a, a new Marple novel probably immediately after The Monogram Murders was published. But we were on a roll with Poirot, and Poirot has been in the in the limelight for a while. And, you know, what, what has added to that, of course, is Kenneth Branagh and, and his movies. And, you know, we've been we've been very much focusing on on Poirot. It's been a it's been the popular strand of Agatha Christie for a little while. But we've also talked for a while about what and when would it be appropriate to do with with Miss Marple, and you know, could we do a you know chapter book series of young Miss Marple mm-hmm. books, and you know, all of those things are, are so a little bit more challenging because we would be looking if we were doing anything like that at you know actually extending a character beyond the realms of what Agatha Christie did with Mm -hmm. and you know all that all felt a bit complicated it's it's so easy to get these things wrong and often rather than get something wrong it's actually easier easier not to do anything at all right um no one gets mad if you don't do anything well sort of they don't get as mad usually no and I and I work with I work with many other estates as well so you know the this is these are conversations and and anxieties that we that we have with met with many authors this mm-hmm. is not you know Agatha Christie in this respect is not is not any different to to most other estates or or, mm-hmm. or canons of work that have to be um, looked at but when it when we we're looking for new ideas and and an idea we thought well maybe it is time now to be looking at at doing something with Miss Marple. The obvious thing would have been to 
find a, a writer and do a novel. I was a little bit concerned that if we took a new a new novelist, an established novelist, almost certainly we you know we would find someone who you know who knew their craft uh-huh. of writing. I was very aware when we first published Sophie Hannah, less so now, fortunately, but early on, there was a lot of vitriol directed at her uh, for daring to, or presuming to write uh, her own Poirot. Her own Poirot. This is Agatha Christie's character and no one else should be writing for him. And Sophie was very clear that, you know, she was writing in the voice of Catchpool. She was, you know, she was mm-hmm. mimic Agatha Christie's yes. voice. She wasn't, try, you know, she wasn't doing pastiche. Yep. She was writing new stories with Agatha Christie's characters. Or, yeah. Favorite. Mm-hmm. I was going to say favorite character, but you mm. know, that, that would be debatable mm. for all those Marple fans. And I was very aware that there were, you know, that if we subjected another author all on their own to doing this with Miss Marple and doing a novel, we could find you know, all the good work that we have done in the last best part of a decade um, over a period when people have accepted that actually Sophie Hannah's Paro books are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, there are people who you know, really, really want the next one. Yeah. And they're always asking. And I thought, oh, we're going to go back to everyone going, oh, how dare they do this also to Miss Marple. And I had been rereading the books again. And I'd always liked The Thirteen Problems. And I, I don't quite know how it came about, but I, I just thought, why don't we do a new Thirteen Problems mm. and have 13 authors, if it were to be 13, writing the stories? Mm-hmm. And then having, uh, you know, giving the book some sort of backbone that, that would link everything together. And enable the you know a, a, a team of authors mm-hmm. to bear the, the brunt of a fan backlash right. if, that, if that were to, were to happen or diffuse it entirely because it's harder to be angry at you know a dozen people well ex- exactly right I mean we what we did know early on was that we didn't want and actually Sophie didn't want to write Miss Marple yes yes she's been very clear about that and so we wanted somebody new and I just thought well and uh, but also you you in publishing you, you have to sign someone I couldn't I couldn't approach a best-selling author and ask them to write a Miss Marple novel on spec without making the commitment. You right. You have to sign them up. And what if they got it wrong? Yeah. They got the tone wrong. Yeah. Or the, you know, and there are all sorts of things one can do in the edit, but it seemed really risky. And we, yeah. I think, you know, one of the reasons it's taken us a little while to do a, a, anything with Miss Marple is that, you know, we don't, we don't like to get things wrong. Of course, everybody does occasionally, but you want to take as much risk as you can out of it. And I just thought if we spread the load and if we were clever, we could do what Agatha Christie did in introducing Miss Marple, mm-hmm. introduced through mm-hmm. the first six stories in, in The Thirteen Problems. Perhaps that was the way, and I suggested it uh, as a sort of one of those catch-up meetings we have with Christie uh, <laughs> Limited, and everybody around the table went, oh, we like that idea. Yeah. 
And so, David, who are you, who are you proposing to yeah. write in? Where's this list <laughs> of authors? List. I, had a few, I had a few names sure. that I, you know, I, I thought, oh, they'd be good for it. And I mean, there are authors in this book who, you know, declared their love of Agatha Christie very publicly quite some time ago. And I, I knew that they would be some of the, the people I would want to approach. Right. But... Agatha Christie has an international appeal, and you know, first thing we decided we didn't just want middle-aged, middle-class, white, British or English authors, mm. you know, all writing stories set in St. Mary Mead. Right. But actually, you know, if you look at how agile Agatha Christie was in her plotting, uh, and particularly with, with her short stories, we could actually, you know, get some some more diverse authors and viewpoints into this. We you know, we have seen Miss Marple in the Caribbean. We mm-hmm. you know that so you know maybe we could take her to other places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we put together some some pretty loose guidelines. The idea of the 13 problems type backbone for the book very quickly went away. I scoped out a couple of ideas for a sort of structure in which you know Miss Miss Marple would be in a setting, perhaps, in which she would be introduced to old friends or people she hadn't met before who would then want to share their stories. Mm. So, so like the 13 problems. With the dinner party setting, which is a bit limiting, quite honestly. I mean, Christy handles it beautifully, but it is, you know, a limiting backbone, actually. That's right. And it was, you know, so it was, I, I thought we could do that or we could, we could have, you know, have her off on some sort of research trip with Raymond who mm. might be writing a new book and she'd go off with him to research it and uncover all these unsolved mysteries. Right. And we thought, no, 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 if we get if we're going to recruit some high caliber authors for this, they they actually constraining them was not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And actually let's just say, you know, over that period, you know, the the sort of nineteen 19- 30 to 1970 period in which the Miss Marple stories and novels sure. set. Just write us the you you know what for you as an author is your most instinctive and cleverest short story that you can for for Miss Marple. And, yeah. You know, and we would put them together and as a celebration of Miss Marple and of Agatha Christie, actually show the perhaps show the flexibility of the format. You know, yeah, yeah. of course we want to see Miss Marple in St. Mary Mead, but let's see her elsewhere. Let's see her mixing with other characters. So with just a few restrictions, we've ended up with a book that is set over in, in different time periods and with different characters, some familiar, some brand new. Because we said to, we said to the authors, you can use any character or situation from the Miss Marple canon mm-hmm. within your story, if you would like, mm-hmm. or by all means create your own. Mm-hmm. But we want the we want it to feel like the world of Miss Marple. Now, again, Sophie Hannah deliberately chose not to mm-hmm. Hastings or George or any yep. any of the other characters, yep. um, and that's that's worked fine in this because and because they're short stories and because actually you don't have as much time to set up new characters or situations. Mm-hmm. Easy shorthand is to say to them, well, you can, you know, you can pull on some of these, but if you want Dolly yeah. Bantry, everybody yep. knows who Dolly Bantry is. Yep. If, you want, if you want to use her, then fine. 
but they have to come from Miss Marple's universe, not Poirot's universe. Mm-hmm. We, don't want, we don't want you meeting Poirot. We don't want any love interest or just all or distractions. We don't want a we don't want a young Miss Marple. We don't want you know the character before Christie consolidated. Yes, Marple's character, mm-hmm. and we didn't really want to anything set after Nemesis. You know? And in fact, I think well, I know one of the stories in the book it, it clearly says early on it's 1970. Yeah, that's it's right at the very end, right of the yeah, yeah the so sort of that's at the end of the period. And Val McDermott has written a direct sequel to the Murder at the Vicarage. She's yes. the second Murder at the Vicarage, and it's that it's also narrated by Reverend Clement and it's the same it's 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 the, very much the same setup you're straight you're straight there as though it's an as though it's a follow-up chapter to that yeah. book and that's obviously firmly 1930s well I have to say and I'll do a more in-depth review and analysis of the collection in another episode that's not what I want to do in this interview but I think my favorite thing about the Marple collection is the fact that it doesn't have any sort of an organizing structure or backbone to it because it's just wonderfully varied. I wouldn't have predicted that that would be one of my major takeaways from reading this collection of short stories, but I felt like it was a great exercise in the notion of possibility. It's just uh, revelatory almost just to go from story to story. And as you begin the next one, think, Ooh, what did this, what did this author who I know and, and who I've read before, what did they, make of this assignment almost. And it's a little bit in the best of ways, like going to a science fair and you see all the different projects and the different directions that people took it in. And and I, I wasn't expecting to be as almost moved by it, actually, just because you can feel that there's this real delight in these authors being able to just create a Miss Marple story. And they just took it in so many different directions. And the overall feel, the sum is very much greater than its parts, actually, as you finish the collection, where you might not love every story. And I don't think anyone is going to love every story because they're so different and you might think, mm, I didn't like, you know, where, where that one went, but that one went, you know, completely opposite direction. It's a really interesting effect overall to have such variations among the short stories in a collection that are unified by this main character. And um, I didn't know that that was what it was going to be when I, when I started reading, but I really loved the effect of it. And it really is the opposite of what Sophie Hanna did with Poirot. So that too, it's just, you're, you're kind of showing the, the spectrum of possibility that is available to an author when doing one of these continuation projects, actually, between what Sophie did and then what all of these authors did. And I, I really appreciated that as a, as a reader, not just of Christie, but as a reader. I'm delighted to hear that because that's exactly what we were trying to achieve. And, you you know, I don't know how people will react to Miss Marple doing Tai Chi, for example. <laughs> it's entirely consistent within the story that is being told. Yes, it is. I love the fact that after Lucy Foley's opening story, which is quite traditional, yes. um, uh, and unrightly so, and then we have we have Val McDermott's sequels, we wanted something very early. I gasped when I realized that Leonard Clement was narrating the Val... I was like, oh my god, this is the best thing that is going to happen to me today. I was so excited. <laughs> so it's... Well, that, that's, you know, that's very reassuring. And then, you know, we get to story three, and it's um, Alyssa Cole um, has Miss Marple dodging the traffic in New York. Yes. Um, and and, 
you know, it's like, wow, what what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a there's an entirely logical explanation as to as to why she is there. And she, it's a beautifully written story with a. She has a lot of fun with it, in contrasting uh, what. Miss Marple would expect to encounter, for example, in a department store back at home, to you know, in, an, in an American store, and that's just the colour of it, the flavour of it. Before you even get to the mystery, it's mm-hmm. fun. Yep. And in fact, all the authors. I mean, what we insisted upon was that the authors had to had to be fans of of Miss Marple, and that might go without saying. But you, when we researched them, when, when we approached them, and invited them to write for the book. We had searched online, and we were, you know, we were looking for all of them. We had to find an interview or something where they where they said, "I love Agatha Christie. I read them as a child." Or we didn't just go, "Who are the who are the most popular authors in the mm-hmm. in the world? Let's invite them to do it." We wanted there to be a connection, and they've they've all had such fun. They really did. You can you can feel that too. It's that's interesting that you look for prior evidence rather than just also asking because I would imagine that almost any author being asked would probably say, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a I'm a big Christie fan." Not that you wouldn't have believed them, but the best proof is that they would have you know on on some forum, either an interview or Twitter or something. Like I know, for example, Ruth Ware. It is very obvious when you go onto her Twitter feed that she is a huge Agatha Christie fan, and you can really feel that. I mean, just to give a sense by the way, of the scope, uh, you know, beyond Leonard Clement, beyond Miss Marple on a cruise ship to um, Hong Kong. We find her in New York. We find her in Massachusetts. Um, there's one story that's told in the first person present tense that has very much of a young adult feel to it, which I actually very much liked. But when I first started reading it, I was like, what? <laughs> That's just a very, very, very odd uh, for a Miss Marvel story, but again, in, in the best of ways. And another one where the murder is actually of an author who's getting tired of a series-long character. It, it has a little bit of a, a flavor of Agatha Christie and Poirot in it, but Poirot himself is not in it, and that also goes in a very different direction. It has a very different, almost mysterious Mr. Quinn kind of tone to it. I appreciated that. Another one is set during Christmas, which is always welcome. Got to have at least one Christmas short story in there. So, yeah, just there's so much going on and also so many references. It's interesting that you that you told uh, everyone that they could feel free to make as many references to the Marple verse, which is what I'll call it, um, as possible, because I was going to ask you, did you actually solicit those references? Because by the end of the book, I think that almost every Miss Marple novel and probably not every short story, but many of the Miss Marple short stories that Christie wrote were actually referenced. I mean, there are a ton of references to plot devices uh, that happened in, in other Miss Marple novels and also characters, big and small. We see Raymond West come up. We even see Cherry Baker, I, I think, is is in one or two of them. Dolly Bantry appears in at least two, I believe. So, they didn't have to make those references, but they were free to, to do so. That sounds like how it worked. Yes, and I think it's it would be right to say that they all went back to the books and had a reread mm-hmm. themselves with the authors. I mean, we asked to see the, uh, a synopsis for each story in advance, just okay. to make sure they didn't all write a Christmas story. Right. Um, or, you know, all yes. a jewel robbery or something. We wanted to make sure there was there was some variety. And I think, interestingly, they were all 
varied enough for them. No one had to be sent back to write something else. But one curious thing, I think, is that three of the writers had a situation within their story where the you know, supremely perspicacious Miss Marple spotted that somebody was pregnant before anybody else mm. in the story. Mm-hmm. And three of the authors did that, and we had to ask two of them to change it. It's <laughs> Joe, you know, this big... It was like, oh, not another one. Right. We just couldn't get away with that three times. Yeah. But apart from that, very little in the way of changes had to be asked for of the of the writers. Right. All, they absolutely got it, ran with, ran with the theme. And, um, you know, and that was... That was rewarding. It was a lot of work. It was like, and I, I didn't do it. My, my colleague and editor Anna Hervey at Harper Collins put all the work into you know, herding these these twelve cats, <laughs> writing the stories. And I mean, some weeks I think it felt like we were publishing twelve novels um, because we, all, you know, they all had the same amount of attention as as you would for for a new book. So making sure they were all together, working out the order. We didn't we didn't establish the order in the book until after they were all written, mm-hmm. because we you know, didn't want two stories that were too similar next to one another. Sure. And as you, two of them are written in male voices in the first person. Uh, one, as you say, is uh, is uh, written in the present tense. So we just wanted to make sure that the finished book was was sufficiently mixed up. Mm-hmm. It's, um, in the stories that it delivered, and it, um, I was very, very pleased with the with the result. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a it's a smorgasbord of uh, Miss Marple, and that seems to have been intended fully. Obviously, all of these authors, and there are twelve of them, right? There, there are twelve short stories yes, in the. I, I said something about thirteen earlier. We do, we thought about thirteen, but in the end, twelve seemed to fit the fit the bill. Yeah, well, it's funny, in The 13 Problems, the last one, that Death by Drowning is a little bit of an outlier story that just kind of got tacked on, so you know, 12 is probably a, a better number anyway for collection, but these authors are all women. So I assume that was intentional <laughs> uh, on your part? Well, okay, so it was obviously going to be really difficult to narrow down our cast of writers and it just made it a lot easier to take 50% of the candidates off the table before we started. <laughs> and so, because I knew if, if we... I mean, we, we wanted to celebrate Miss Marple and we wanted to celebrate Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing to say that, that male writers can't and shouldn't do that. But it became obvious when we were, when we were shortlisting that... There were more obvious female writers who would do this, mm-hmm. who were sort of doing this sort of writing already, than there were perhaps men. Sure. Um, uh, a lot of crime fiction by men might be a bit harder or more thrillerish, um, and there were some. There were some clear candidates, you know, who would be good at this. But I didn't want to get into a position where we had one or two mm. in otherwise. Um, a book of female authors, and and so early on, it, it it quite naturally turned into this idea that mm-hmm. you know let's let's celebrate the the most famous female writer and, and the most famous female detective with mm-hmm. all, an all female cast of writers. Yeah, and even as we were going through and checking, I mean, one or two 
writers turned us down, not because they didn't want to do it, but they were they were just too busy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a popular best-selling author, you've probably got two or three books already right. up ahead in the queue, yeah. And are being shouted at for having missed your latest deadline. <laughs> and you can't dash a short story off in a couple of weeks. It needs proper thought and time. And and there were one or two authors who didn't just didn't have that time. So we had a we had a, a sort of a short long list mm-hmm. and and got that down. And um in the end it was actually easier just to select from from women. But what we haven't done, I know that it therefore looks like after having worked with Sophie Hannah and now we've got all women that we're saying that oh, only a woman can write for, for an Agatha Christie character. We're not saying that. We just haven't yet, you know, had the opportunity to bring a male writer in. But no, I didn't want one or two token male writers. I thought mm. that would be wrong. And it has given us a, a, an extra marketing angle to say this is a this is a book by uh, only by women. But I don't. I wouldn't want people to think that it should only be read by women. Right. Um, it's absolutely a book for everybody. No, that's the great thing. I mean, it's 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 honestly a strength of the book. I think, and it is there is kind of an elegance to it, as you said. You know, female writer, her best female creation, and then you know all these all these female writers doing the continuation of it. And then it's very obvious that there is a real attempt made within the collection to diversify the world of Miss Marple, even as to race. And that's something that doesn't really happen in. Christie's books, or when it does in a Caribbean mystery, for instance, it may involve depictions that strike us as readers as stuck in their time. But in this book, we have lots of representations of people of color, uh, and many of them created by authors who are themselves people of color. So I have to imagine that that too was deliberate. And, you know, I'm wondering if that was in some ways, a reaction to that issue of depiction stuck in their time in Christie's work, or at least the perception of that issue, or if this was just something that that, that you were generally interested in in addressing or, or doing a good job on, was there any was there any sort of intentionality around that? Well, in Christie's time, certainly the the early years of Christie, you know, there were no writers of color, uh, certainly writing in this genre. It, it would have been extremely difficult. Now, of course, there are so many uh, writers of, you know, rainbow-coloured writers mm-hmm. um, being published. And, you know, so we, you know, we had freedom to invite anybody to write the book. I mean, I, I think, I think it's, a, it's a strength of it to be able to put Miss Marple into situations that are characterised by, by authors with a broader experience. Mm-hmm. We wanted to take her abroad, for example. Mm-hmm. Jean Kwok writes the most amazing story of her on a cruise ship that brings it brings in some some really nice references that I'm not sure a, a, a Western writer would have thought of. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, we've, we'd seen Miss Marple in the Caribbean and, and uh, Dreda Say Mitchell it plays on that a little bit mm-hmm. by having Miss Bella as a as a sort of counterpart to yep. Miss Marple. Yep. It just seemed very natural to open up Miss Marple's world a little bit. Absolutely. And do that by having as as broad a, a number of voices as as we possibly could. I it's I would have liked uh, an author in here who, for whom perhaps English was not their first language. We did talk about mm. working with some of the um, Agatha Christie publishers overseas to, mm-hmm. find, to find a, you know, perhaps a popular German crime writer or mm-hmm. something. But then, the, you know, working something back into into English. We didn't give ourselves a lot of time, mm. um, and we were 
quite familiar with the with authors, um, you know, from from uh, other languages. Um, I'd have liked an Australian or a New Zealand author as well. I think that we, we could have played a little bit with that. Mm. We satisfied our own brief, which is to, which is to have as much variety as possible in the book. I think what's interesting for me, and I, I mean, no decision has been made, and I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to promise or overpromise, but I think there is scope to do even more with this format. Um, and I, you know, I would love to do another book like this and, and perhaps go a little bit broader and to bring some men in mm-hmm. and be able to play with the format. But as we said when we published that standalone Sophie Hannah Poirot novel, let's wait and see how it goes sure. before we embark on another one. There was a lot of work involved. It's been, I think, three years from having the original idea to mm-hmm. actually publishing the book. And, um, you know, it might take us three years to do another one, but I, I'd be up for the challenge, and, and I would... I think I'd push that, I'd push that envelope even further than we have already. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, in that this book seems to be so much about possibility, you could always take that further. And it it, it almost when I finished it, it 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 almost begs the question of okay, now where next? You know, we've you've already gone in in so many surprising directions, but there's always a new one um, that you could go in. And it's it's just kind of breaking free of any of the restraints, I think, that perhaps we might have felt in an earlier time and um, in a really productive and constructive way. I was just really inspired by it, actually. I, I really was. So that's great. I was going to ask you if there if there were more in the works. So let's hope. And, you know, who knows if it goes well enough, maybe uh, Parker Pine or uh, Harley Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite continuation series <laughs> years in the future. Well, that's interesting. I, why not? I mean, I, I think, you know, it's it's very tempting, you know, as the public, given that the exercise is to try to encourage people to revisit mm-hmm. Agatha Christie's own books, those characters, although iconic, the fact that they only exist in one or two books, mm. then it's much less obvious. I would, I would be really interested in doing more with Tommy and Tuppence. Mm. Almost... To rehabilitate Tommy and Tuppence, you know they are you know, perhaps two of the least popular Agatha Christie characters, and and the five books therein are very different. Of course, they they age within them, but I think there's so much you could do with with the two of them. Absolutely, um, at, at all sorts of times within their life. There are a lot of gaps to fill, right? Yeah. I mean, that's if you're going to stick to the same rules, I, they span her entire career, and there are only five of them. So, yeah, and it would, it's true. You know, that would be that would be really interesting. But it is publishers tend to do the most obvious thing, and the most obvious thing with Agatha Christie is to focus on first Paro and then and then Miss Marple. Oh, sure. Um, so we we could certainly do other things. I don't know. They, there are. It, I. I don't think you're likely to see a situation where we're churning out you know, new books based on Agatha Christie's work. There's no need to do that. Absolutely. Um, because there there are plenty of books already, and new readers come to Agatha Christie all the time. I mean, I said yeah. earlier, that's you know, it's always a challenge. Am I going to wake up one morning and? She stopped selling. Of course, that's not going to happen. And in actual fact, people are discovering her all the time. And so we don't we don't need too many catalysts, if we call them that. 
But I think I think the occasional new book is a, is a good thing, and I yeah. I like to sort of I hope delight and surprise people with them. So it'd be great to do something a, a little bit more unexpected, if you like. Yeah. Um, once once we got Mark out of the way. <laughs> All right. Well, I always I end pretty much every interview with two questions. They're both very simple, and don't really require long answers, even though they might not be easy to answer, but what is your favorite Agatha Christie novel? It's usually the one I've just read. <laughs> um, Fair enough. That's very corny, and you've, I'm sure lots of people have said that. It could be your favorite novel right now. The answer can always change, but in this moment... I think my favorite Christie book at the moment isn't written by Christie. I think it's this book of Marvel Short. <laughs> um, I've... Yeah, lived and breathed it for the last year. I'm. You've been reading it. It's it's the last Christie you've read for a long time, I would imagine. Yeah, I think I I think that's true. That's a bit of a cheat, but let's yeah, let's stick with that. All right, fair enough. And then my final question, uh, gun to head. So you do have to make a choice: Poirot or Marple. That's not difficult. It is Marple. I have always liked the Marple books. There are fewer of them, of course. Sure. Um, but I think they're consistently a very strong series of books. And I like the way that actually Miss Marple tends to be more of an incidental character, if you like, to the stories than with Poirot, in that she sits on the sidelines a little bit more and, and the detection is led by policemen probably more. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're all different policemen and mm-hmm. they, they all write Miss Marple off and get you know get her wrong. But I I just think there's a if I were rereading Christie as I as I do, if I'm doing it for fun, I tend to go back to the Marple books probably more readily than the Poirot's. Well, I, I love that answer because I am a Marpleite as well. So that is the correct answer. I actually love asking everyone the question because everyone has an answer and the answer is always good and well-supported because there are really good reasons to like Poirot and there are really good reasons to like Miss Marple. And people often have different reasons as well. So I like that. I know what you mean by her being a more incidental character. I think there's, there's something often more organic and almost readerly if that makes sense, about the Miss Marple novels, whereas the Poirots truly are puzzles and often feel like puzzles, and that's exactly why a lot of people like them. And I like those too, but my affection, I think, really does lie with the Miss Marples, and that's part of the reason. Well, this has been a very long interview, and I really appreciate you taking all this time, David, especially at the festival, and it was really just fascinating. And congratulations on this latest continuation collection because I really did enjoy it. And I am very hopeful that uh, everyone else is going to enjoy it as well. And I really do hope that there's more Marple material that will come out in the world and perhaps uh, some other surprises in the years to come. Thank you. Well, thank you again to David Braun of HarperCollins for... A fascinating interview. I was expecting to talk to David a lot 
about the new Miss Marple collection, and we did talk a lot about that. But the first half of the interview in which he really deep-dived as to the continuing problem of selling an ongoing catalog like Agatha Christie's after the author's death from the publisher's point of view, that was just really interesting. And I think he's one of very, very few people on this earth who has that perspective. And I'm so appreciative of the fact that he shared it with us. Apologies yet again on sound quality for this episode. It's nowhere near as abysmal as for my live episode, which I aired two weeks ago, but I do realize that it's not great. One of my big takeaways from the International Agatha Christie Festival is that I need to figure out a better way to conduct these roving episodes. So live and learn. I do intend for there to be more roving episodes in future. I also, by the way, just really loved the tidbit that there were three separate authors within the Miss Marple collection who had Miss Marple divining a pregnancy as an example of her observational prowess. Christy herself went to that well in The Murder at the Vicarage, actually, at the end of the story. I won't say who was pregnant. I wouldn't want to spoil that particular plot line in the novel. But I do understand the impulse. It's a very Miss Marple-ish thing to do to know that someone is pregnant when no one else does, except for the pregnant person. So in a future episode, I am going to be conducting a state of the rankings now that the podcast's ranking grid is complete. But first, I am going to begin reviewing the final short story episode for each of Christie's major detectives. That would be everyone other than Tommy and Tuppence, and I apologize to Tommy and Tuppence and any Beresford heads that may be out there, but when I was keeping short stories in reserve for this very point in the podcast, when Catherine and I would be finished raking all 66 of the novels, I wanted to keep one short story per detective in reserve, and I just kind of forgot about Tommy and Tuppence, so that pretty much says it all, but I have a Parker Pine, I have a Poirot, I have a Marple, and I also have a Quinn Satterthwaite story. And that is going to be the first of these final stories that I'm going to review, and that will be our next episode. The story in question is the Harlequin Tea Set. Very, very late short story of Christie's. In fact, I believe it is the final short story that she published all the way in the 70s. Really can't wait to cover that. Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite have always been a podcast favorite. Catherine loved them. I love them. And we shall delight in them one more time. If you would like to hear more from me, head on over to the podcast Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can just click on the link I've provided in the notes to this episode. October's offering is a review of the recent film release, See How They Run, starring Sam Rockwell and Saoirse Ronan and Adrian Brody. It takes place in 1953 at the Ambassador Theatre in London during the early period of the Mousetraps run. This is an extremely meta Agatha Christie-addled murder mystery film. I had so much fun watching it and almost as much fun reviewing it. So if you'd like to listen to my review, you can head on over to Patreon and subscribe. 
You can always email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame, and on Instagram at allaboutagatha, and I would really, really love it if you would give the podcast a rating and or a review. It's never too late. All right, see you next time. Bye.